Ed, our teaching pastor, is out this week with his family on vacation. Um, Foundation Prep Academy does something I think every school should do, is have a fall break. And so they're on fall break this week, and uh, they're enjoying time with family in Asheville, North Carolina. So you can be praying for them, for safety, and for rest. Um, for them and good time with their family together there. Uh, next week, we will be jumping into a new series in the Gospel of Mark. Um, it will probably be the longest uh, series that we have uh, walked through since Chad has been here. Um, we will be in Mark for quite some time. We're breaking it into three different kind of vignettes that we'll, we'll go through. And so um, that will be running probably through the end of the school year. You don't want to miss uh, the uh, book of Mark. It's going to be incredible. Um, it's amazing that we are stretching out the shortest gospel into the longest series. So um, it's quite the feat. Uh, but, but I'm excited about it, and uh, I hope you would be as well as we, as we dive into the book of Mark. So today, I get to preach a, a one-off. And as I was trying to decide where the Lord was leading me to go, I don't, I don't preach often, um, but when, when I do, I, it's usually one of these standalone things in, in between series. And so it's hard as a, a preacher to decide, where am I going to go? I get one Sunday to say stuff. What, what should I say? Um, and so as I prayed about it, and the Lord has been dealing with me over the last year, um, the theme that kept coming back to me was worry and anxiety and knowing the peace of God. If, if you are listening, um, watching, you understand the fears and anxieties and worries that plague our society, our world. Um, and as Christians who believe in the authority and the sufficiency of the scriptures, we believe that Jesus has spoken to these things and has the answer for all that ills us. Over the last year, things have been exposed in the human hearts over this, through this pandemic, um, what our fears are, what, what our biggest concerns are, and it's kind of shined a bright light um, into my heart, um, and I hope into yours about, about what we're really trusting in um, in this life. Before I start, let me say, this is not any, in any way um, going to be a political address about things that are going on in the United States or abroad. Um, I want to speak solely to this issue of worry and anxiety. Um, just a few statistics for you. Um, in the United States in 2020, anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S., affecting 40 million adults in the United States age 18 and older. That's um, approximately 20% of that population every year. Let's say they struggle in some form with anxiety. Um, anxiety disorders affect 25% of children between ages 13 and 18. Research shows that untreated children um, are at higher risk to perform poorly in school, miss out on important social experiences, and engage in substance abuse. So anxiety in general is a problem in the U.S., but it was compounded by the effects of the pandemic. One group did uh, a data collection from January 2020 to September 2020 to see how the pandemic was affecting people with anxiety and, and depression. 
And they found that more than half a million people reported signs of anxiety or depression, with September of 2020 reporting the highest rate of severity since the start in January. And anxiety screens were up 634% from January, and depression screens were up 873%. Nearly 180,000 people who took those screenings reported suicidal thoughts and ideation on more than half of the days or nearly every day of the week, with the highest reported number of 37% in September of 2020. Over half of 11 to 17-year-olds have reported having thoughts of suicide or self-harm From January to September of 2020, nearly 78,000 youth reported experiencing frequent suicide ideation. So it's no surprise to us that anxiety and worry are a problem. And for many of us, anxiety and worry are problems within our own heart. And so in Philippians 4, we read, beginning in verse 6, what Paul has to say to the church at Philippi. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, Open the eyes of our hearts to see what you would have us to know and learn. God, we pray that you would shape and mold us by your spirit into the image of your son. Lord, we would be convicted of sin and confess our sins to you, knowing you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Father, let us live for you and you alone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So just a little bit of background here. The Philippian church is receiving this letter from Paul who is in a Roman prison. Um, he, He has sent this to encourage them to speak about Christian humility, to, to, to calm any um, fears and anxieties and worries that the church might be experiencing, to solve some disputes that are going on there in the church that he has heard about um, just before this passage. He's asked some of the elders in the church there to, to help work out a fight going on between two ladies in the church. Um, and uh, And so Paul has a pastoral heart and a shepherd's heart for this congregation. And as he's finishing up this letter, he leaves them with these thoughts. Don't worry 
about anything. Don't worry about anything. Some of your translations might read, be anxious for nothing. And if anyone had reason to be anxious, it would be these Philippians living in the first century. Our first century brothers and sisters were facing persecution daily from Roman authority and their culture. Their future was unsure as death rates were high and the lifespan was short. The average lifespan was 30 to 40 years old um, in this context. Food sources were unsure. They, they weren't able to run to Walmart or HEB or Kroger to, to grab what they might need for dinner that evening. There was no irrigation technology at this point, no preservatives in food, no freezers and refrigerators. They were at the mercy of the weather and the climate and in many cases, their neighbors and those around them for whatever they might eat. Sources of nourishment were not a guarantee like it is for us. And so we have Jesus in Matthew 6 saying, don't worry about anything, about what you will eat or about how you'll be clothed. Because if I clothe the lilies of the field or the grass of the field that's here today and gone tomorrow... How much more do I care for you? And sometimes we can be lulled into the sense of we have it so hard here in first century America. It even becomes a joke, first world problems, right? We have first world problems uh, when we can't get our Wi-Fi to work correctly or fast enough. Um, and, and we joke about it. Yet people in our neighborhoods, in our church, in our schools are really struggling with anxiety and worry. And the Bible has the answer, and it's namely the peace of God. Knowing the peace of God and knowing the God of peace, this passage offers us both. So first, I want to focus on verses 6 and 7 here. Paul ends this little uh, section with this promise that you would know the peace of God which surpasses all understanding and it will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So how does he say we get the peace of God? How are we to know the peace of God? Well, he, he tells us in beginning in verse 6, don't worry about anything. Well, thanks, Paul. That's helpful. Don't worry about anything. If any of you are uh, fans of Bob Newhart or um, Mad TV back in the day, um, don't start throwing things at me. Um, there's a, a video on YouTube that goes around where Bob Newhart is counseling this woman, and she has this great fear of being buried alive in a box. And he's charging her money for this session, and he says, stop it. She's like, what do you, what do you mean? He said, well, you don't believe somebody's actually going to bury you alive in a box, do you? Well, well, no. Then why are you worried about it? Stop it. And she's like, don't you have any other advice for me? He says, stop it. <laughs> and it's funny because this woman has paid for this counselor to tell her 
all about the troubles of her childhood that have led her to this fear and to unpack this fear and help her figure it out and where it's coming from. And his answer to her is, stop it. And it's funny to us, but in a sense, that's what Paul is saying to us in verse 6. Just stop. Don't worry about anything. But he doesn't just leave it there. He goes further. Because unlike the counselor in that situation, Paul knows the power of the Holy Spirit that is available to those who trust in Jesus. So he says, here's how you actually stop it. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer, let your requests be made known to God. I don't want to spend a ton of time talking about how to pray necessarily. Chad has preached on that topic a few times, and you can find that on our podcast, but I do want to hone in on the two things that Paul mentions about prayer. Namely, he tells us when to pray, and he says in what way we should pray. First, he says to pray in everything. Verse 6, don't worry about anything, but in some things you should pray. But in most things you should pray. In the biggest things you should pray. The things that worry you the most, you should pray. The hard things, pray. In the sad things, pray. In worrisome things, pray. No, he says, in everything, pray. In everything, pray. It's not hard to walk through the waiting room of a hospital and find someone who would love for you to pray for them. However, walking through a sports arena where everyone's there to cheer on their team, it's really difficult to find anybody who wants you to pray for them. When Paul says to pray in everything, he means everything. Your sorrows, your joys, your failures, your success, your dreams and your nightmares, your fears, your frustrations, your worry and your hope, your losses and your victories, pray in everything. Why does Paul say to pray in everything? Because Paul understands the person who brings everything to God is a person who is wholly dependent upon God for everything. If I am praying to God in everything, I am showing my dependence upon God for everything. There was a professor at Southern Seminary when I was there who has gone on to be with the Lord now who would open up every class with a simple phrase, are there any prayer concerns? And he would wait while the class sat in silence. And then no one raised their hands to offer any prayer concerns, and he would bow his head and say, Well, Father, it doesn't seem that we need you today. 
Amen. And then he would go about class. And so the next class, everyone had a prayer concern. <laughs> because we weren't going to be those people that weren't dependent on Jesus, right? But that's what many of our prayer lives say. Because we don't pray in everything. And so we show the nature of our heart is, I have this. I'll come to you for the big stuff. I'll pray to you when I really need something. When somebody's about to die or somebody's been diagnosed with a terrible illness or I've been in a car accident or I'm injured in some way or I've lost a job or something dramatic has happened, then I come and pray. But I don't pray in everything because I think that I'm independent and not needy. But Paul says, if you want to stop worrying, pray in everything. Offer God thanks and praise in your victories. Offer petitions to him when you, when you need something from him. But he doesn't just leave that. He doesn't tell us just when to pray in everything. He tells us how to pray, and it's with thanksgiving in verse 6. He says, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. One of the most common treatments for depression is a gratitude journal. This is true for biblical counselors and for secular psychologists and therapists as well. One of the main ways that we treat depression in people is to have them start a gratitude journal, writing down what they are thankful for. Now, the difference between a believer and an unbeliever in this area is an unbeliever really doesn't have anyone to be grateful to for anything. But the believer in Jesus has someone to whom we're thankful for everything because we realize everything is a gift from God. Everything comes from his hand. And so Paul says to be a thankful Christian will keep you from worry. When you pray with thankfulness, you will know the peace of God. A heart of thankfulness has no time for self-pity or worry. A heart of thankfulness has no time for self-pity or worry. I was born in 1986, and there was the video camera, the, the family camcorder um, had not been out very long as far as one that was affordable to a family to own. And a friend of ours brought her video camera to our first Christmas. And so I don't remember this. <laughs> I was, you know, a lump on the floor trying to crawl at that point. Um, but I've watched this video. My cousin and I were the same age. Um, she was just a couple of months older than me. And we had received the same gift from a family friend. And we we're on the floor in the living room playing with our toy. And I can't remember if it was me or her. I'm sure it was her. Um, who set aside her toy and came and took mine. Because I would never do this. Um, she set aside her toy and came and took mine, and I began to cry. She had the exact same toy. 
But even at that age, at six months old, she wanted something somebody else had. Mom, am I telling that right? Or was it me that stole it? No, it was her. Okay, good. <laughs> yes. Um, I'll, I'll mention no names. Um, rather than be thankful for the things she had, even at six months old, she already wanted something somebody else had, even though it was the same thing. Because it must be better, because I don't have it. See, when our eyes are not looking to God in thankfulness, our hearts are drawn to covetousness and envy and jealousy. And as James writes, that is the source of all of our fights and quarrels. We want what somebody else has. And I would argue that this is the source of many of our worries and our anxieties. We want what somebody else has. We're not thankful for what God has given us. Paul himself is modeling this for these believers as he writes this letter. He writes this letter to thank them for their support and for their encouragement and their prayers. Paul is sitting in a Roman prison awaiting trial. And rather than wallow in self-pity and depression about his circumstance, he's writing letters to churches for whom he's thankful He's still shepherding the flock of God from a prison cell because Paul has this type of relationship with Jesus. He is praying in everything and he is giving thanks in all things. And the result of that is this. In verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He gives us three characteristics of this peace that God is giving. One is that it comes from God. This peace comes from God. It does not come from the right circumstances. So many of us run looking for the right circumstances to finally bring peace in our lives. But this peace does not come from right circumstances or having some kind of external need met. Well, when I get the right job, then I'll be at peace. When I get the right house, then we will be at peace. No, this peace comes from God. It is divine and it is not dependent on your circumstance, and it is not dependent upon your needs, because Jesus has said, I will meet your needs. Don't worry about your needs. Secondly, it transcends our understanding. This peace of God passes all understanding. This peace is present even when we don't understand our circumstances and can't explain why we have peace. It transcends our ability to even describe it. This peace that passes all understanding. There's so many believers who I've watched walk through really hard things. And I don't understand how they have the peace that they do to walk through it in the way they do. And it's because it is this peace. It is a peace only given by God. It is divine 
peace because they are trusting and they are leaning on Jesus. They are thankful to him. They have prayed in everything. And lastly, he offers this promise, this peace of God that passes all understanding. It will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This peace is not passive. It's active and it is working on our behalf. The word guard here is a military term that Paul is using. This divine peace stands guard over your heart and your mind to keep out the cares and anxieties of the world. If we are praying in everything, if we are offering petitions to God with thanksgiving, then this peace that God gives is going to act on our behalf and guard against the cares and the anxieties of the world. What a promise. What a promise. So, Paul has told these Philippians and us how to know the peace of God, but he goes further. He, he goes on to give us a promise as to how we can know the God of peace. He flips it. Not only will you know the peace of God, you can walk with and know the God of peace. In verses 8 and 9, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure and lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything, any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things and do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me in a God of peace will be with you. As one commentator writes, this speaks to the need of rearranging life and thought through discipline so that the God of peace can freely work in us. The need of rearranging our life and our thoughts through discipline so that the God of peace can freely work. Paul gives two different lists in these verses. One is things to think about and the other, things to do. Things to think about and things to do. He starts out by saying whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, anything of moral excellence or praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Dwell on these things. Brothers and sisters, we consume more information than any people in the history of the world. This last year, I, I read a great little book that I highly recommend called The Wisdom Pyramid by Brett McCracken. It's not a very big book, but he offers some help as to how to be wise, and he bases it on the food pyramid from the 90s. Um, but it's a wisdom pyramid. What things are we taking in that will make us wise? And he shares some stats about information that is coming at us. You'll see it on the screen here. In 2019, a single minute on the internet saw the transmission of 100 and, or 188 million emails, 18.1 million texts, and 4.5 million videos viewed on YouTube. By 2020, there were 40 times more bytes of data on the internet 
than there are stars in the observable universe. Some estimates suggest that by 2025, 463 exabytes of data will be created each day online, the equivalent of 212,765,957 DVDs per day. What even is an exabyte? And consider this, five exabytes is equivalent to all the words ever spoken by humans since the dawn of time. In 2025, that amount of data will be created every 15 minutes. That is insane. Every 15 minutes. And so I have two concerns. For myself, for us as a church, collectively, for our culture and our world. One, as they were spending all of our time dwelling on what is on Facebook and Instagram, very little of which is honorable, true, just, pure, lovely, commendable. And that two, we don't actually dwell on anything. We've lost our ability to think deeply about anything. Because the minute we get a thought that we might want to run down a trail of thoughts about God or about something he's teaching us or about something we've learned in general, we interrupt that thought by pulling down on the screen. Just refresh the feed. See what new might pop up. We think we can multitask in our tech-driven world, but multitasking isn't actually a thing. Your brain can do one thing at a time. We're just interrupting ourselves all throughout the day. And it's led us to the inability to dwell on anything, to think about anything. I'm going to read a long passage from this book, The Wisdom Pyramid, because I think it, it was very helpful to me. I hope it'll be helpful to you as we think through how we use technology and how this is feeding our anxieties. He starts here, our phones are now encyclopedias. They're libraries, universities, universes. But as convenient as it is to have such access, answers to any questions we might have, results for any painting or video we want to see, umpteen resources for whatever we might want to research, the glut of information online is also overwhelming. It's, making, it's not making us wise. Just as too much food makes a body sick, too much information makes the soul sick. Information gluttony is a real problem in the age of Google. Its symptoms are widespread and concerning. And the first symptom he mentions is anxiety. Too much of anything causes problems for our health. This is as true of the information we take in as it is of the foods we consume. The information bombardment we increasingly face, characterized by nonstop swiping, scrolling, viewing, listening, reading, texting, multitasking from morning to night, is creating stress in our brains and contributing to rising levels of anxiety. Our brains are shockingly adaptable and resilient, but they have limits. 
Today's frenetic information landscape is making our brains busier than ever. The information triage that our overburdened brains must constantly perform naturally drains huge amounts of energy. Constant multitasking drains our energy, making a dinner reservation on Yelp between replying to mom's text, sending a work email, and watching a must-see video of, that a friend shared on Facebook within the span of five minutes. This sort of extreme multitasking, notes neuroscientist Daniel Levitin, overstimulates and stresses our brains. He says this, asking the brain to shift attention from one activity to another causes the prefrontal cortex and the striatum to burn up oxygenated glucose, the same fuel they need to stay on task. And the kind of rapid, continual shifting we do with multitasking causes the brain to burn through fuel so quickly that we feel exhausted and disoriented after even a short time. We've literally depleted the nutrients in our brain, and this leads to compromises in both cognitive and physical performance. Among other things, repeated task switching leads to anxiety, which raises levels of the stress hormone cortisol in the brain, which in turn can lead to aggressive and impulsive behavior. So Brett says, another way the information glut causes stress and anxiety is that we burden ourselves with massive amounts of unnecessary and often troubling knowledge. When we're physically sick, we search WebMD to find answers and usually only find more to worry about. Amen. Anytime you type in something on WebMD, you have cancer. Um, as if our own struggles and our family complexities were not emotionally burdensome enough, our Instagram and Facebook feeds pull us into the pleas, rants, and emotional vortexes of hundreds of others throughout the day. The constant news notifications of amber alerts, deadly tornadoes, measles outbreaks, school shootings, suspicious activity in our neighborhoods thanks to apps like Nextdoor and the Ring Doorbell, and all manner of horrific crime headlines accumulate in our consciousness, burdening our brains with anxiety about the mounting number of ways the world can kill us. Our Fitbits, diet apps, and other health gadgets provide information about our bodies that can be helpful in moderation, but that can easily become an anxiety-fueling obsession. It's not that information of this sort is always bad or unhelpful. It's just that the cumulative effect of too much information so easily and constantly accessible to us creates a burden that our minds and our souls were not created to bear. Are we so filled with information that we're experiencing an underlying anxiety constantly? And when something like COVID-19 happens, it explodes. It's not that it caused the anxiety. It's that the anxiety is already there. We have laid the groundwork for worry by consuming information constantly. I hear people constantly say the world is just the worst it's ever been. And I say to that an emphatic, no, it is not. In fact, in many ways, it's the best it's ever been. Our lifespan is not 35 years of age. 
We're living longer than we have. Medical science has advanced in ways we never could have imagined 50 years ago. What is making us feel that it's worse than it's ever been is that we have more information at our fingertips than we've ever had. 50 years ago, you would have read a newspaper and known about some of the crime happening in your community. Now, you're alerted to crime happening everywhere at every moment. And what Brett says in this book, your soul was not made to bear that. Our souls were not made to bear that kind of weight. God put us in bodies, in a place. We're here for those around us, the community that we live in, that God has sovereignly placed us in to affect that community with the gospel for the gospel. Not to be concerned about everything that affects every human on the planet at all times. Because we trust God to take care of those things. He's placed other people in those places. He's called other people to himself that live in those places to address those problems. Paul is convinced that the thought life of a person will be reflected in the way that they live. And so he, he not only gives this list of virtues to think on, and I would challenge you this week to use this passage as a filter and ask yourself the hard questions. Are the things I'm dwelling on lovely and true and good and commendable and praiseworthy? Or am I dwelling on garbage? Am I just feeding myself images from Facebook that, that aren't lovely and praiseworthy? Am I reading articles that are not true? They don't reflect truth. They especially don't reflect the truth of God. Paul gives this list of virtues for us to think on. And then he says, now I want you to go do something. In verse 9, Think on these things, verse 8. Now, verse 9, do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul turns his attention to practice. He doesn't stop with the thought life, but he calls the church to action, to do the things that he told them that they had received from him and the things that they had heard and seen in him. So what are the things that they've learned and received and heard and seen in Paul? Paul's constantly calling the church to imitate him. He does that back in chapter 3. And he says here, do what you've heard and seen in me. Imitate me. So I would ask, what discipling relationship are you in? Who are you imitating? Is there somebody in your life who walks so closely with Jesus that you want to be like them? And are you looking to imitate them and their life? Who's imitating you? Or are you too scared to tell anyone to imitate you because you know you're not walking the way the Lord would have you to walk and to live? 
See, Paul could confidently say, I am the chief of sinners in Romans. And yet in Philippians 3 say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Just because you're a sinner doesn't mean you can't say to a younger follower of Jesus, imitate me as I follow Christ. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to have sin to confess. But you do likewise. Who are you imitating and who's imitating you? Secondly, what they've learned and received from Paul was the gospel of God. Namely, that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, has taken their sin on the cross, took the death they deserved and was raised three days later to new life and has offered that to them. So he says, put into practice the gospel and the scriptures. But if you're to practice them, you must first know them, which is why he says, dwell on these things. If you're going to practice, you must know Thirdly, they had seen Paul endure persecution. Paul's in prison in Rome when he writes this letter. They know the persecution that Paul has gone through, and he says, imitate me. Practice what you've seen in me. Do what you've learned from me. Persecution is coming for you. Follow my lead. Follow my example. And lastly, I believe Paul is telling them Love the saints. It's what Paul does. He loves the saints. He's writing letters to churches while in prison because he loves them. He cares for them. What are you doing to love the saints? There's a spiritual epidemic in this country of people walking away from the church. People my generation and younger who think they can do Jesus and themselves. That is not the gospel that we've been given. That is not the scriptures we've been given. That is not the faith once for all handed down to the saints. The faith that we have been given requires others. And Paul shows that clearly. He's in prison writing letters to other believers who, by the way, are fighting amongst themselves. So the next time somebody tells you about, oh, the hypocrisy of the church and how terrible these people are, I just can't stand to be around them. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter from prison to people who are fighting amongst themselves to care for them and shepherd them and love them through it. Paul doesn't abandon these people just because they're wretches. He knows they're wretches. That's why they need the gospel. Anytime somebody offers me this criticism of the church being hypocrites, I'm like, amen. We are hypocrites. That's why we need Jesus. And you are too. Because I've never met anyone who lives up to all of their own ideals. We should love the saints like Paul loves the saints. We should gather in spaces like this to, to worship together. To hear from the word together. We should spend time around one another's tables talking about what God's doing in our lives. Being changed into the image of Jesus. And what is the result of living this way? 
the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. Richard Mellick writes in his commentary on Philippians, God's peace especially resides in those who have ordered their lives in accordance with God's will. This includes proper and disciplined thoughts and good Christian living. Thus, the two sets of instructions here complement each other. When anxiety appears, the cure is prayer. When the life is disorderly, the cure is mental and practical discipline. When worry and anxiety are creeping in, pray with thanksgiving and the peace of God will be with you. When life is crowding out, all the information coming out at you is crowding out the gospel. Discipline yourself. Order your life in such a way that you're thinking on the things of God and living out the gospel and the God of peace will be with you. We're not left alone in the fight. God himself has promised to be with us. So let's preach this good news to a world who so desperately needs to hear it. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that we don't have to fear tomorrow. We don't have to worry about tomorrow. God, you've already been in tomorrow. You know what it holds for us. And you've promised to walk with us. So God, I pray we would trust your promises to us this morning. And that we would tell others about the gift of your son and the peace that he offers.